this morning. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to open the Word of God with you. It is uh, with a great gratitude that uh, I want to thank the elders and you, the congregation, for being so warm and welcoming, so hospitable and kind. Thank you very much. With that, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, our text this morning will come from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. We'll be reading that together this morning. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. The Gospel of Mark. The word of our Lord reads, When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressed in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house to the synagogue official, house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child is not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. 
Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astonished. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given her to eat. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your eternal word, which declares in itself the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So once again, we ask that you would illumine our minds and quicken our hearts and open our eyes that we might see great and mighty things in thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. There is a pastor whose name was Ed Salmon. He has passed away. He was a pastor in South Carolina. But in 2016, he recounts an incident in which he went out for lunch. And he said, when I got to Forest Park, there's usually a homeless man or two standing there. There was a terribly disheveled man standing there that morning with a sign. And that sign said, I'm homeless. And of course, he was going by the cars, and no one was looking at him. He got to my car, and I rolled down the window, and I said, I, I don't have any money with me, but my wife is going to take me to the airport in about an hour and a half, and I'll have something for you then. And do you know what he said to me? He said, thank you for looking at me. Didn't say a word about money. He said, thank you for looking at me. This passage today is about our Lord Jesus, who looked at others in a way that many don't look at them. He looked at them through eyes of compassion. He didn't turn a blind eye, but he saw who they were with impartiality, and in the exercise of his power, he ministered to people. This particular account this morning is an account of two individuals, two accounts, one sandwiched in between the other. It's about a man and a woman, one rich, one poor, one respected, one rejected, one who was honored, one who was ashamed, one who was clean, one who was unclean, one who led the synagogue, one who was not even permitted to be in the synagogue because of her uncleanliness. But both of them would experience the compassionate power of Jesus. Immediately before this particular account, Jesus had performed some of the greatest displays of power up through that time. He had stilled the wind and the storm on the sea. He had cast out a multitude of demons from a man in Gerizim. He had demonstrated the unparalleled power over nature. He had demonstrated his power over the supernatural realm as well. And you would have expected that after such great displays of power, people would want him to come. But the people on the eastern shore, they told him in chapter 5, verse 17, go away, go away, because they were afraid. And it is a telling testimony because even in the face of the power of Jesus, not everyone will turn to Christ. Some will say, well, if only Jesus would come here today and show himself today and be the person that he says he is today, I would turn to Christ. But that's definitely not true because many times Jesus did that. Many times people rejected him. 
But here in this particular passage, this passage here speaks of him coming to the other side of the shore. And there are two individuals that he ministers to because he sees them through eyes of compassion, through completely different socioeconomic backgrounds. Doesn't matter. He ministers to them. He serves them. He brings about a powerful healing to the glory of God. And we look first at the despairing officials in verse 21, that very first individual. The text of the scriptures read, Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side. A large crowd gathered around him. This was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so he stayed by the seashore. He had gone to the western side because the eastern side, they had told him to go away. They were afraid. Remember, he had cast out all of these demons, and so he took a boat to the other side, and there were massive crowds. There were massive crowds that had been following him. You recall in chapter 2, verse 2, the house where Jesus was teaching was packed, and in chapter 3, verse 30 of the book of Mark, it says it was so packed, he couldn't even sit down to have a meal on that side of the shore. The Bible tells us that Jesus stayed by the seashore, and it was an apropos area because he would be able to stay by the seashore, and because there were masses of people who would come to hear what he would have to say, he would be able to climb into a boat, and he would be able to push out a little way, and in teaching from the boat, there would be a separation between him and the people, and his voice would be able to reflect off of perhaps the placid waters, and more people would be able to hear but here in this account, it tells us one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up. And on seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. Now, a synagogue official wasn't one of the Pharisees. He wasn't one of the Sadducees. He wasn't one of the scribes. He was an individual who was a leader of the local synagogue. Every synagogue would have anywhere from three to seven synagogue officials, and what they did was they ran the business of the synagogue. They ran the school if there was a school. They took care of the facility. They kept the scroll safe. They would organize the readers of the scriptures. They would be those who led in prayer. They basically took care of everything in the local synagogue, and they were intimately acquainted with the Pharisees, but they themselves weren't Pharisees. But no doubt, the sentiment of the religious leaders of that day was well known to the synagogue leaders as the animosity against Jesus had continued to build over time in the ministry of Christ. But here was a very important, respected individual in a position of power, in a position of influence, in position of the religious establishment, he comes and he falls before the, the, the feet of Jesus, and he pleads for the help of Jesus. And to those who are watching, this would have been a shocker, for he fell, it says, proskuneo, he prostrated himself, a position of worship before Jesus. And here is his plea. His plea is, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hand on her so that she will get well and live. It was a shocker because the people very well knew some of the religious establishment's sentiment toward Jesus. But here, driven by the sickness of his daughter, he comes 
and casts himself before the feet of the Lord Jesus. She is desperately sick. The text tells us here she is just 12 years old, just a child on the cusp of womanhood in which she would begin to establish her own family, in which she would begin to find a a spouse. She would be married. Her whole future was laid ahead of her. But now all of that was in question because she was desperately sick. And in those days, there was little medical treatment that could be done. Sicknesses, life-threatening situations are always difficult to face, but they are even more difficult when it is a child who is ill and extremely difficult when it is your own child. And so here, I'm sure Jairus, like any parent, would be willing to do anything, to give up his life for his own daughter. And the anxiety and the worry that would fill his heart must have been overwhelming. And so you can imagine, here the respected synagogue official pushing his way through hundreds of people, perhaps even thousands, in order to get to Jesus, who had been healing people who were sick, who were crippled, who were maimed. He comes to the front. He casts himself down, not caring what other people would think. Even the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were around, he would cast himself down. He would cast himself before the feet of Jesus and beg Jesus to heal his daughter. And what did Jesus do? The text tells us. He went off with him, and a large crowd was following him. Here is a man who turns to Jesus, and Jesus responds. You can imagine the excitement that he must have had, the overwhelming anticipation of what Jesus might do. Jairus wasn't going to let this opportunity pass by. Jesus was coming to his home. Jesus was going to come. But rather than continue the story, what Mark does here is he has an interruption. He has this interruption in which there is this climax. And here's what happens. A desperate woman comes. Story number two, verse 25. A woman who had had an hemorrhage for 12 years had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and had not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. This woman... Mark positions her, tells us about her, is in stark contrast to Jairus. This woman was economically, she was positionally, she was physically, she was ceremonially, completely the opposite of Jairus. The cards had been stacked against this woman in a number of ways. First of all, she had a bleeding issue. She had a bleeding issue. It could be said that perhaps she had what was known as an obstetric fistula, is a bleeding issue, and Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 through 27, tells us about a woman who has a bleeding issue, and if she had a bleeding issue, she would be considered unclean for seven days after the bleeding issue stopped. She would be considered unclean. In other words, it would be a reminder of sin, the effect of sin, But because of that law and because this woman's bleeding issue had not stopped, it says in the text, for 12 years, she couldn't offer sacrifices. She could not be a part of the temple worship or the synagogue activities. Everything this woman would touch, it would be considered unclean. 
People who touched her, they would be considered unclean. No one would want to touch her. She would not want to touch others because if she did or you did, you would be considered unclean. You wouldn't be able to participate in the temple events. You wouldn't be able to participate in the synagogue events. And this woman faced that same ostracism, second only to perhaps leprosy. Imagine this woman, if she had children, never being able to hug her own kids for 12 years, never being able to experience the embrace of her husband if she was married, shunned by people. They wouldn't want to touch If she touched a doorknob, no, they wouldn't touch that. If she touched a pot, no, they wouldn't touch that. If she was walking by, they would walk by on the other side, making sure that they would not touch. She was separated and faced that type of ostracism. Secondly, she had no hope of healing. The text tells us she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had. She was broke. She had spent all that she had having these physicians who didn't help her. In fact, it had gotten worse. She saw doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor. Do you know what sort of cures they had back then? Well, the Talmud, the Talmud, which was the Jew Jewish civil and ceremonial laws, the commentary on the laws, they had some healing practices. They listed two. One, one of their prescriptions for someone who had this type of bleeding, they said, well, quote, you carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and in a cotton bag in the winter. Here's another cure that they listed. Carrying around a barley corn kernel that had been found in the dung of a white female donkey. Now, I'm sure there were all sorts of snake oil, superstitious remedies that they had pandered upon this woman. If you try this, well, I think you'll get well. And she paid the money for this fake advice. But her bleeding had not stopped. In fact, she had spent all of her money. She was at the end of her line. Ostracized, broke. In fact, the text tells us her bleeding had gotten even worse. Thirdly, as I mentioned, she was poor. She was destitute. She was financially at the bottom of the barrel. She was scraping. No money, no friends. Family ostracized. If she had one, she had nothing that would be of worldly value. No status. No health. And remember in those days, if you were afflicted, if you were afflicted, people would look at you and they would say, you must have sinned or someone in your family must have sinned and God is judging you for that. But what she had, God valued and that was faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Ah, the expression of faith. Much to the chagrin, I'm sure, of the people that she touched to push aside as she was getting to the front, just like Jairus was. She believed, though, in the healing power of Jesus, and she came up in the crowd, perhaps getting her way there. Just to be clear, when she was healed, when she was healed by Jesus, Jesus healed people with faith. He healed people who didn't have faith. As we'll see later on, this little girl was dead and she, he healed her. 
God had a special plan for this woman. After touching the tassels of Jesus, she would be healed. It says in verse 29, immediately the flow of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. No waiting period, no physical therapy, no rehabilitation period, nor any sort of time delay. Her healing was immediate. This was characteristic of the healings of Jesus, virtually instantaneous. Unlike many of the charlatan healings that happen today, Jesus wasn't unaware, though. He perceived that the power had proceeded from him. He said, who touched my garments? Now, I don't think that Jesus didn't actually know. Just like in the garden when there was sin and Adam was hiding, God said in Genesis 3, 9, where are you? It is not as if God actually didn't know. No. Many times, many of you parents probably know, sometimes you'll ask your child a question and you very well know the answer, but you want them to fess up. You want them to come. You want them to tell you the truth for their own good. And his disciples, well, they were a little bit bewildered. They didn't know what was going on. You, all these people who were cramming around you, Lord Jesus, and you say, who touched me? Well, everybody touched you, but he looked around. He saw this woman, and he knew. It says in verse 32, this woman with fear and trembling comes, knowing what had happened to her. She told him the whole truth. That's what Jesus was after, I believe. With godly fear, this woman fessed up. She'd been bleeding for 12 years, and I touched you so I could be healed. Now, even in this interruption, as Jesus was going along the way, he sees this woman, he ministers to her, he, he isn't upset, he isn't perturbed, he isn't bothered. No, he says in verse 34, daughter your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, this is not some sort of prosperity, health, wealth statement here. First of all, he calls this woman daughter. It is the only time that Jesus addresses someone in a familial term, in a family term. He addresses her in a family term, calling her daughter. Why? Because the next statement tells you, your faith has made you well. Second statement, go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, when physical healing occurs in the text, the word that is used is iaomai. It is a word that Mark uses in that second phrase to say she was physically healed of her affliction. But that first statement, when he says, your faith has made you well, that word well is a different word. It is the word sozo, and it is the word that refers to being saved. It is a New Testament word used for being saved. So here is what Jesus says. He has says to her, verse 34, daughter, familiar term, family, your faith has saved you. Go in peace because you have been physically healed of your affliction. It is not her faith that physically healed her, although that was, I'm sure, a part, but her faith had saved her, her faith in Jesus. We come to Christ. We are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when we come to Jesus, God grants to us that free gift of salvation because we have turned from sin, placed our faith in whom Jesus has revealed himself to be, the Savior who has died for sinners, who has paid the price for those who have repented and turned from their sin. Here she fesses up in truth. She places her faith in the Lord Jesus. She touches his garment. He heals her of her physical affliction, and her faith brings her to salvation as God draws her to himself. Jesus, here on his way to heal an important official's daughter, someone who was significant in the community, a well-known individual on the brink of death his daughter was. He was a man on a mission, and yet in this interruption, he has compassion. He heals this little, this woman who was ostracized Rejected by society, impoverished, he stops because this too was a part of his ministry. Many times when we face people and we have our plans and we have our schedules, sometimes do we see the interruptions that come into our lives that God brings as even points of ministry in which we can serve others. Jesus had compassion on people, whether they were rich or poor, whether they could pay or not, whether they were important or unimportant, whether they were well known or little known. He was impartial and didn't look down upon this woman as if she wasn't worthy of his time. No, he stopped. Sometimes we may feel that others are simply an imposition. In our own sinfulness, we feel as if sometimes these interruptions are just that, an interruption not worthy of our time. Yet God brings things like this into our lives. But here, the text continues on, tells us about what Jesus does in this incident that is sandwiched in between the healing of Jairus' daughter. We see he comes about and he raises his daughter to life. Verse 35, and while he is still speaking, they came to the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Now, I believe the incident with the woman in which Jesus pauses not only was intentional, but it was intentional in that the daughter would die, and he knew that that would come to pass. He was never too late, and God is never too late. Just as many times in the scriptures when we see God's timing being perfect, he arrived and Lazarus had passed away. And what? Mary comes and says, well, if you had only come earlier, he, my brother would still be alive. But Jesus very well knew that he would die. Here, he very well knew, too, I believe, that this little girl would die. And he says, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Jesus will take the three who were closest to him, Peter, James, and John, as well as the parents in. But when they came to the synagogue official's home, there was a commotion, the text tells us, verse 38, and people were loudly weeping and wailing. Now, just so that you understand the context of funerals in that day, I don't know how it is here, but in funerals there in the States, what we have is it's very somber, it's very quiet. We tell people to turn off their cell phones in respect of the time, and it is a time in which we provide Kleenex, and we provide all sorts of things in which there is an orderly but solemn time. 
We sing hymns and songs, and there is a time in which we reflect upon a person and their passing. But it was very, very different in that time. There were three things, three things that were prescribed in that time that expressed grief in funerals of that day. Three things that were prescribed. Number one, there was a tearing of clothes. There was a tearing of clothes. Now, the tearing of clothes, you just don't tear your clothes in any way that you want. There were regulations in which tearing of clothes had to be done. In fact, there were 39 regulations in which you had declared your clothes as a way of showing that you were weeping. You couldn't, for instance, just tear your clothes. You had to tear your clothes standing up. Secondly, if you were uh, the mother or father, you had to tear it directly over your heart. And you couldn't tear this little tiny tear. You couldn't go rip and have it torn. You, know, you had to tear your clothes over your heart if you were the mother or father large enough to stick your fist through it. You couldn't have anything that would be little, a little tear. And you couldn't uh, sew it back up nice and neat too. No, you had to sew it up with big stitches so that everybody could see that you had these big stitches and that your cloth, clothing was torn out of mourning and you had to leave it that way for 30 days. And if you were female, well, you could turn your shirt around in order to show for modesty. But this was your opportunity. This was your opportunity to take that ugly shirt your uncle gave to you and tear it in half. So this is the first way you expressed your grief, by the tearing of clothes. Secondly, a second requirement in funerals was that you had to hire wailers. You had to hire professional women wailers who would shriek and wail and cry in anguish loudly. They would get to know your family members who had passed away and cry out their names as well. Not only the one who had passed away, but your ancestors, and they would wail leaply, loudly, and cry out. And if you're poor, you had to hire at least one wailer. The more you had, the better. Thirdly, not only tearing up clothes and not only having whalers, but you had to hire some flautists, people who played the flute. Now, you might think, wow, that's nice. I, they have something nice. I like flute music and all of that. That's pleasant. But you had to have at least two. And the reason why you had to have at least two is because they had to play in dissonance. They had to play completely opposite, so it would be loud clamoring that would add to the noise, the wailing, the confusion that would happen at a funeral. Imagine just putting three toddlers in front of a keyboard and asking them to play as loudly as they could. That was the atmosphere that was there. That was what they had to have. Why? Verse 39, make a commotion. That's what it means. The commotion and weep. The child had not died but asleep. And then in verse 40, it is very telling. Verse 40, the text tells us they began laughing at him. Now, you can understand now that these hired whalers, they really were putting on a show. You cannot turn from genuine grief to just laughing at something that someone says. I mean, they must have been quite good to turn like that and just laugh at what Jesus says. Communicates that they thought Jesus was a fool. Jesus, it says, put them out. In other words, that was a phrase to get out. And he takes the family into the room. He says, little girl, literally little lamb, I say to you, get up. And immediately, Mark loves this word, immediately the girl got up and began to walk. 
begin to walk. That, that word means to pace around, full of energy. It wasn't this type of thing where somebody wakes up out of some sluggishness. Immediately, like many of Jesus' miracles, all of his miracles, in fact, very little, if any time, the healing occurred. Profound. This girl walks around just like a child who has difficulty keeping their energy in check. This girl got up and began to walk around for she was 12 years old. And the text tells us they were amazed. They were amazed. It was a jaw-dropping miracle that Jesus did. Not only had Jesus in the previous text stilled the storm on the sea, not only had Jesus in the previous text cast out thousands of demons from the man of the Gerasenes, not only did Jesus stop this woman's bleeding, but he saw with compassion the eyes of a wealthy individual whose daughter had just passed away, just like he saw with compassion the ah, the healing need of this woman who had been bleeding. Without prejudice, he saw through eyes of compassion one who was respected and one who was rejected, one who was wealthy and one who was poor, one who had the opportunity to serve God and one who was rejected by the temple, desiring in her heart, though, because of her faith in God, she received salvation. Jesus saw through his eyes of compassion, and we ought to as well. There was once a young man who was drafted into a war. He was a young man. He was eager. He was willing. He came from a wealthy family. He was an only child. He spent his time with his parents and his friends before he packed his bag, before he said goodbye to his mother and father, and he left for the front lines of the war. Regularly, he would send letters home from the front. Regularly, his mother would go out to the mailbox, anticipating the letter each time, and she would read them over and over and over again because it brought her great joy to hear from her son. And then one day, the letters stopped. The war dragged on for many, many months. His mother would stare out the window. His mother would go out to the mailbox. Each day, she would open it and not find a letter. Then one day, the phone rang. The mother picked it up, and there she heard the voice of her son. He said, Mom, I'm coming home, he said. I'm sorry I haven't written, but I'm coming home. Are you doing well? And she said, yes. Mom, I have a big favor to ask of you, though. You see, I have this friend. I have this friend who saved my life. We were in battle together. There was a landmine, and he took the hit instead of me. He had his arms and legs torn from his body, and so he was a quadriplegic. His face was badly mutilated from the explosion, and I told him he could come and live with us. I told him he could come. His mother hesitated and said, well, where, where is he going to stay, son? He said, he can stay in my room. He can stay in my room. She said, well... I don't know, how, how can we take care of his needs and how is he going to eat? He said, don't worry, I'll, I'll feed him and he can stay in my room. 
She said, I, I don't know if it'll work out. I don't know if it really will work out. Uh, there's a veteran's hospital perhaps nearby. He can live there. You can go visit him every day. But mom, I told him he could stay with us. I'll take care of him. She replied, I, I don't know, son. But mom, he pleaded, he saved my life. I know, son. We're looking forward to having you home. We can't wait to see you again. But we can't take care of him. But mom, I'm sorry, son. We'll see you soon. And he hung up the phone. A week passed and she didn't hear from her son. She anxiously waited at the window. Then one day, a military car drove up and two soldiers came out, rang the doorbell and they said, ma'am, your son, we're very sorry, he died recently. We'd like for you to come and identify the body. She was shocked at the news and she rushed to the army base and they took her to examine and identify the body. And when they uncovered his body, she saw him. He had no arms, no legs, and his face was badly mutilated. The soldiers told her that he had committed suicide a few days ago. They told her that he was a hero because he had defended his comrades and stepped in front of an exploding mine and the mother's eyes, she realized in her heart she had had no place for someone like that. If you turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 20 and 21, the text tells us about who Jesus is in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, in verse 20 and 21, these words of Jesus was written by the prophet Isaiah. Beginning in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 12, the prophet Isaiah writes about the Lord Jesus and he says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then verse 19, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in him the Gentiles will hope. Verse 20 tells us, that a battered reed he will not break off. That comes from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3. Shepherds would take reeds, which were common in those times, reeds in which they would put holes in them. They would break off a section. They would put holes in that reed, and they would turn that hollow reed into a flute, and they would play that flute to pass the time, to calm the sheep, to be able to use as a musical instrument, but over time what would happen was that their saliva would cause that reed to be softened. And many shepherds would then, what they would do was they would, they would simply break it in half and throw it away. 
But the Lord Jesus, it says, would not do that, nor would a smoldering wick, a smoldering wick, as many of you might see a candle, a smoldering wick, and what do you do if it's smoldering? You take your fingers and you snuff that out. This passage is about the kindness and compassion of the Lord Jesus. He speaks of the people and he looks at the people who were shepherdless, discouraged, down, downcast, struggling. People who had been perhaps at one time excited about life, but then no, there's only a little spark left. People who had been used one time to make beautiful music, to calm the souls of others, but now they were what? Weak. Jesus wouldn't be like the shepherd who would simply break them off and throw them away. Jesus wouldn't be like one who would simply snuff that life out. Whatever you've been through, Jesus would never treat one who was struggling and suffering like that. No, what does he do? He revives them. He cares for them. Whatever trouble that might pass in someone's life, whatever conflict might be experiencing by someone, whatever it is, housing, unemployment, whatever it is that is causing the vitality of someone to fade away, and you feel as if your life is only but a spark smoldering, no, he doesn't snuff them out because we have a God of compassion who looks through eyes of compassion and he ministers to people regardless of who they are. And he says to all who would come to him, turn from sin, placing their faith and trust in him, just like he did to that woman, your faith has saved you. That is the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is to you that we come realizing that we are helpless and weak. We are the ones who had no arms and no legs, who were badly mutilated by sin, and you brought us in. It is we who were at one time smoldering and broken, but you have brought us to life once again by your saving grace, for you have come to revive your people, to give them a fresh, new life. And we pray, God, may we look upon others in a way that you would look upon them, with eyes of compassion, eyes of love, eyes of care, knowing that, Father, many struggle. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be people who are instruments of grace, extending mercy, knowing that your spirit brings about joy and a life that is abundant. For you are our God, our Savior, our Shepherd. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.